0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church, where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie.
1: Today, you will be invited to pause the recording at several points to prepare and engage in rituals, and we hope you will do just that. Let us begin with prayer. We are here for grounding, Holy One. We are here for reassurance. We are here for routine, for familiarity, for comfort. But we are also here to be challenged, to hear a word that shakes us out of our complacency and a tendency towards selfishness, and to be empowered to love like the beloved community that we are. Speak, Holy One, for we are listening. Amen. This week begins Palm Sunday. Hear the story according to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me." If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fall of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Monday of Holy Week. Once Jesus made it to the city of Jerusalem, he didn't waste any time. Hear what happens next from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers." So much for nice Jesus, right? And we are used to thinking of Jesus as fit for polite company, a gentleman calm and nurturing, a peacemaker, not a rabble-rouser causing a scene. But without justice, there is no peace. So it is that we find Jesus turning over tables in the temple, making a mess both of the physical place and the system behind it. As the Reverend Dr. Amy Lindemann Allen explains, the temple was intended to be a place of prayer and devotion, The temple authorities in Jesus' day attempted to capitalize on that devotion to make money by highlighting dated religious ordinances rather than adjusting the interpretation of those ordinances to support the sincere worship patterns of the people. So it is that Jesus interrupted the temple. Jesus was not quietly suggesting that there was mismanagement going on or that there was a need for rearranging or just reallocating resources. Jesus was calling out the system as unjust, unfair, and in need of a total overhaul. Jesus, as Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan explain, shut down the temple. But it is a symbolic rather than a literal shutdown. It is a prophetic action that intends in microcosm what it affects in microcosm. It is the same as pouring blood on draft files in one single office during the Vietnam War. The Pentagon is not shut down literally, but is shut down symbolically. Jesus intends to dismantle the entire system and rebuild it for the flourishing of all people which we could more clearly see if we had kept reading. Because of the way we have divided the text, Jesus' actions in the temple are separated from the teachings that follow. In doing so, we miss the link between Jesus' action and words, which serve to offer a different ordering of life, one not centered on economic exchange, but on the greatest commandment, which in Matthew 22, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is how he wants to rebuild, and it got him into a good amount of trouble, as we know. The authorities didn't like it. We, too, are in the middle of an interruption One that is showing us just how badly we need to dismantle the entire system and rebuild it to support the flourishing of all people. The coronavirus has revealed in no uncertain terms the crisis of economic injustice in this country. We know from the grassroots campaign Repairers of the Breach, led by the Reverend Dr. William Barber, that half of us do not have the resources to essentially prepay two weeks' worth of our basic living expenses. According to an audit conducted in partnership with the Institute for Policy Studies, 140 million Americans cannot afford a $400 emergency. For 43% of the U.S. population, the call to be prepared for this virus is like asking a skydiver to get ready to jump from a plane without a parachute. Half of our population simply does not have the resources to prepare for a public health crisis, much less be in a public health crisis. The vast majority of people working for less than a living wage in America are working in service industry jobs. They are preparing and serving food, cleaning hotels and public buildings, and caring for children and the elderly who are the most susceptible to the coronavirus. According to the Economic Policy Institute, less than a third of Americans in the bottom 10% of wage earners have access to paid sick leave. These are the very people who cannot miss a paycheck or stockpile resources at home, who, even if experiencing symptoms of coronavirus, are most likely to go to work anyway because they cannot afford not to. More than 35 million Americans still have no access to health care, and tens of millions more cannot afford to use the health insurance coverage they have. The coronavirus did not create this problem. This has been the reality for a long time. People unable to afford or access care and treatment for a myriad of other health conditions. The system is in need of an entire overhaul. It is time to turn over some tables, church. It is time to overturn the table of health insurance tied to employment. It is time to overturn the table of minimum wage in favor of a living wage. It's time to overturn the table of profit over people. We have the blueprint for a new ordering of things so that all might have abundant life, which is to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be sure, this will probably get us into a good amount of trouble. The authorities won't like it. But what else should followers of Jesus expect? Or maybe it's not our expectation we should focus on so much, but rather Jesus' expectation that we get into trouble right along with him. The question now, who's willing? Tuesday of Holy Week. Tuesday. Is it just Tuesday? This week has been a really long year. Perhaps because of the emotional events at the temple, we now find Jesus in the home of his friend Simon. Listen to the story from Matthew, chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the world, What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. We find this story in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have a version. The details vary between the stories. Two of them say that the woman anointed Jesus' head. Two of them say she washed and anointed his feet. Same thing with the disciples. They are present in some of the retellings, not in others. In all but John's gospel, the woman is anonymous, no name to identify her specifically. Although most people assume they know this woman, she is most commonly thought of as a prostitute. This is the case even though only in the gospel of Luke is she described as a certain kind of woman, a sinner. While Luke says nothing about her actually being a sex worker or really anything at all about sexual activity, prostitute is one of the strongest associations people have with this woman. None of us are surprised at this, of course. The quickest way to dismiss a woman is to suggest she is not pure, not perfect, that she is promiscuous. To suggest a woman has had multiple partners, for pay or not, is the easiest path to character assassination for a woman. Even though the Gospel of Matthew praises her in no uncertain terms, he writes that wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, that she will be told, this story will be told in remembrance of her. And even though Jesus never mocked prostitutes or made jokes at their expense, it is a long-standing tradition of the church to look down its nose at her, this woman who recognized the meaning of Jesus before the rest of the disciples did. This is, in part, because the text is highly threatening to the patriarchy. Theologian Elisio Perez-Alvarez notes that this passage offers one of the most powerful examples of women interacting with Jesus which upends gender norms in the church. Throughout much of Western history, the Pope, a male, crowned the king, another male, or vice versa. But here, but here, Jesus is anointed, or given power, by a woman from the countryside, from the working class, from the laity. To which the church has said, Oh dear, we can't have that. If we let women do the deciding, they'll ruin the church by insisting on fluff and pageantry, and the Pope will end up wearing bright red Prada shoes or something. So, the woman has been traditionally cast as loose to keep her and other women who might assert such authority in their proper place in the church's gender hierarchy. But the sacred story of this woman anointing Jesus sends a powerful anti-sexism message. Of course, this is not the only anti-sexism message in Scripture. This story reminds us of the woman who Jesus corrected in Luke chapter 11. A woman in the crowd exclaimed to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But Jesus was bold in his response. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The blessing was not reserved just to the woman who birthed him, but to anyone, men, women, and children who live faithful lives. For Jesus, women were more than just childbearing machines. In story after story, we are told that Jesus honored women by treating them as the equals they are. He did not avoid women or refuse to be alone with them. He engaged with them in deep theological conversation and discussion of orthopraxy or right practice of faith. In short, in the kingdom of God, as portrayed by how Jesus lived, women are equal intellectually and spiritually. Women are equal. The story about the woman who anointed Jesus falls into this same narrative. Jesus did not shy away from this woman and he publicly praised her actions. It is important to note how brave this woman was. Despite what we know about gender stereotypes and gender norms both then and now, it is a wonder this woman had the courage to do what she did. She must have known she would have been shamed For such an act, called out, dismissed, humiliated. But she did it anyway. This woman made what Reverend Dr. Nancy Pittman once described as a lavish, life-affirming gesture to Jesus, and she didn't blink. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everyone was looking at her. She claimed her power to honor and celebrate her teacher in a way no one had before, even though it was a risk for her to do so. This posture is quite foreign to many women. Dr. Brené Brown writes, in a US study on conformity to feminine norms, researchers found the most important attributes associated with being feminine as being nice, pursuing a thin body ideal, showing modesty by not calling attention to one's talents or abilities, being domestic, monogamy, and using our resources to invest in our appearance. Basically, we have to be willing to stay as small, sweet, and quiet as possible, and use our time and talent to look pretty. When women don't, we feel shamed, which is the fear of disconnection, the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished that makes us unworthy of connection. If we don't conform to social norms, we are afraid we will be cast out. But the woman who anointed Jesus chose to be brave. In spite of all of that, she ignored protocol and the status quo. I have no doubt that she understood the risk. She likely knew, as most women know today, the risk of being shamed for not staying small, sweet, and quiet. And by small, sweet, and quiet, I mean staying within the accepted and expected behaviors and attitudes for women, which certainly do not include anointing anyone, for goodness sake, but here we have a woman who let herself fill the room just as the fragrance from the perfume did. She trusted her knowing. She did what she knew to be right, which Jesus recognized as a profound act of love. I wonder what might happen if Christian women started taking our sacred stories seriously. The significance of this woman's action is, of course, profound. She recognized and honored Jesus in a way no one had before, and there are thousands upon thousands of sermons on what this anointing tells us about the meaning of Jesus. But just as remarkable is the courage it took for her to come to Jesus, to break open the costly ointment and anoint him Not a single word from her is recorded, but it was certainly the opposite of small, sweet, and quiet. This is why the disciples responded so forcefully. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? The disciples thought she must be put back in her place. Which makes us wonder, what would have happened if the men in this story, hadn't been bound by shame, shame that likely caused them to condemn the woman who anointed Jesus. Matthew tells us that the disciples threw a fit about the perfume because, quote, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And on one hand, yes, of course. But Jesus' response to the disciples implies that there were other ways the disciples could have provided for the poor. A feminist reading of the text prompts us to wonder if the disciples' unfortunate response had something to do with shame. Because men experience shame just as women do, and it influences their behavior just as it does women. To return to Dr. Brown's work, Research shows that we judge people in areas where we are vulnerable to shame. So I wonder if the male disciples were feeling like they weren't giving enough, doing enough, being enough. I wonder if the male disciples felt the kind of devotion and love towards Jesus that inspired the woman to make her lavish, life-affirming gesture, but they were held back by convention and restrained by male gender norms and expectations. Instead of joining the woman in her act of tender care, the disciples tried to rein in her behavior, perhaps to try to quiet the voice in their own head that told them to join her, but they couldn't because that's just not what men do. Just like women, men know their assigned role and they have their script memorized. U.S. researchers identify winning, emotional control, dominance, power over women, disdain for homosexuality, and pursuit of status as some of the most common attributes associated with masculinity. A gesture like the woman's would have made them seem too emotional. Or worse, what if it revealed that they were afraid Afraid of the road that Jesus seemed hell bent on taking, afraid of what it would lead to, afraid that they would lose their friend and teacher. When Dr. Brown asked men to define shame, they responded shame happens when people think you're soft. It's degrading and shaming to be seen as anything but tough. Shame is weakness. Showing fear is shameful. You can't show fear no matter what. Men, generally speaking, live under the pressure of one unrelenting message. You cannot be afraid. You cannot show fear. You cannot be vulnerable. This is the male version of the message women receive about being small, sweet, and quiet. And it can be just as suffocating. Both messages, be small, sweet, and quiet for women, and you cannot be vulnerable for men, those messages are killing us, making us live less than honest lives, and causing us to turn on each other. That's what happened in our story. Better for the male disciples to shame this woman, make it seem as if she were irresponsible and frivolous, than risk being seen as emotional, caring, and tender. Better to be thought of as principled, responsible, and reasonable. Shame kept the men from being set free to do what they really knew was right and good. Earlier, we wondered what might have happened if the disciples hadn't been bound by shame. But we actually do know what happened in the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. In the Gospel of John, the word used to describe how the woman cared for Jesus, ekmaso, is the same word used to describe how Jesus cared for the disciples as he washed their feet at the Last Supper, Jesus' response to the woman's act of love and devotion was to repeat it, to pay it forward, to make it a practice, one that we continue today in our Maundy Thursday services. That's the thing about Jesus. He didn't play the shame game, and he modeled for all of us what it looks like to turn towards each other instead of against each other. In this last week of Lent, perhaps it's shame that we let go of. Shame that puts us in a box. Shame that has us stay small, sweet, and quiet. Shame that holds us back from being vulnerable and open. Shame that makes us lash out to humiliate someone else. Shame that makes us afraid to take a risk. The good news is that we have no reason to fear disconnection and rejection, for we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, certainly not artificial gender norms we begin to draw the circle wider as we practice turning towards each other instead of turning against each other. The world is in need of lavish, life-affirming gestures, especially right now, that cause love to grow and deepen. We have the good news, church. We have been set free Let's start acting like it. Amen. By
2: Wednesday, the plot thickens as we read from Matthew 24, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. It is oh so easy to think that we would never do this. We would never be a Judas. We would never betray another for personal gain. But let us reflect on what we would and wouldn't do using this poem by Sarah R. We wear silver pieces almost every day, earrings and watches, a sign of artistry. Soft metal that gets infused with memory, polished and tarnished as we live and breathe. We carry silver pieces each and every day in jackets and purses as loose pocket change. Tiny discs of metal with the faces of white men. Washington or Caesar, you decide when. But it's hard to believe that this one simple metal, the same thing we use for dining utensils, was also the reward that was paid for Jesus' life. Thirty pieces of silver handed over at night. Thirty pieces of silver, that's all it took. Blood money to say Jesus was a crook. Blood money to say he doesn't matter to me. Blood money for the man who just washed them clean. It's hard to believe that in just one night, Judas could go from washed and clean, forgiven and known, loved and seen, to then turn around so easily for a small cash payment ending in brutality. And while I wish this story was far from my chest, I'm afraid i deal silver along with the best, one piece for the homeless I choose not to see, one piece for the gossip and loud mockery, one piece for using other instead of friend, one piece for building walls out and within, one piece for greed that I hold so tightly, One piece for thinking it's all about me. One piece for believing dichotomies. One piece for refusing to see beyond me. 30 pieces of silver, that's all it took. Blood money to say Jesus was a crook. It makes me sick because I know the truth. Love will exist for me no matter what I do. For I am like Judas, I carry silver. But Jesus is like water, making me cleaner. Will you pray with me? This story, though heavy, is an invitation. An invitation to consider the ways we betray each other. An invitation to think about the ways we betray our best selves. And an invitation to choose the road less taken. Be our vision, Holy One, that we might be faithful and loving, whatever the
1: challenge. Amen. Thursday of Holy Week. Hear the story from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death, Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. You know the other half of the story, right? That the disciples that went to the garden with Jesus ended up falling asleep. They couldn't stay awake to pray with him. And if we're honest, we don't blame them. Prayer is tricky for a lot of people, even when you're not tired. And by tricky, I mean it's a mystery that we're not sure what to do with. So we mostly don't pray. The Bible is frustratingly contradictory on the subject of prayer, On one hand, the prophets in the Hebrew Bible are very clear. They insist that God does not want our prayers. In the list of things God wants from us, prayer hardly ever makes the cut. In Hosea, God said, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. No prayer involved. The prophet Micah had something to say on the subject too. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Again, prayer doesn't make the list. Prayer doesn't even make the Ten Commandments. And if prayer was so important, wouldn't God have included it in the Big Ten? As with many subjects, if you don't like what those Bible verses have to say about prayer, just, just keep looking. In Second Chronicles, we overhear God talking to King Solomon. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Here we have God calling for prayer from the people. And an entire book of the biblical canon is made up completely of prayers. The book of Psalms is prayer after prayer after prayer. Some of them sound like they were written um, by someone pretty upset, asking God to rain down death and destruction on one's enemies. But we are also offered some of the most comforting words uttered by the human heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the New Testament, things are a little different. It seems that prayer is a foregone conclusion, even if it doesn't explain exactly how it works. The Apostle Paul, who gives us our first writings in the Christian tradition, urged the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, but also confessed to the church in Rome, we do not know how to pray. Isn't that the truth? Yet, this doesn't stop Paul. His letters to the early churches are full of prayers and declarations that he prays for these communities daily. He asks for prayer for himself and for those who make up the body of Christ. It isn't a stretch to say that Paul's insistence on prayer was based on Jesus' example, because that guy was a praying machine Jesus prays by himself, in public, in small groups, early in the morning, in the wilderness, on the mountaintop, at the table, before healings, after healings. Jesus prays when he's in trouble and for other people. It seems that the only situation missing is a prayer two minutes before kickoff. Thanks be to God. Jesus offers the disciples a model for prayer. Pray in this way, he says, and launches into the familiar Lord's Prayer. Perhaps the clearest instruction to followers of the way comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For Jesus, prayer goes hand in hand with faithfulness. If we use Jesus as a model, it is clear that prayer should be a regular practice for people of the way. But that's just it, isn't it? We've lost the idea that prayer should be a regular practice. Practice, that catch-all word for exercise, work, custom, rehearsal, preparation. Instead, prayer has somehow gotten lumped in with those things which a person must believe in order to be a real Christian. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? A question that implies that prayer is some kind of magic trick. But what if, instead of being something we believe in, we understand prayer as a spiritual practice We would have to take it more seriously. It is a discipline. Discipline is about teaching. It is to train oneself to do something in a controlled and habitual way. It is an activity or experience that provides mental or physical training. Week after week in worship, we lift up our concerns together to remember that we are not alone. That there are people around to help us carry the load. This is why we offer prayers of confession. We need to practice confession, not to get better at feeling guilty, but so that we become better at acknowledging our role in why things are not always quite right, and our responsibility to change ourselves and our community. Prayer as a spiritual practice is a way to practice pausing in the midst of chaos or uncertainty, to stop, to take a minute, to take a breath. If prayer is just something to be believed in, then it is all too easy to be too busy, too hurried, too distracted to pray. It takes no effort to sit down and just start eating what appears on your plate or change the channel when the nightly news becomes too depressing. But the discipline of prayer is like a mental speed bump that jolts us out of thoughtlessness and allows us to examine our way of being in the world and our connection to others. In prayer, we think about where every meal comes from and how far it traveled to get to us, who grew it, and under what conditions. In prayer, we think about the souls who make what we consume. Do they have kids at home? Do they get time off if they are sick? In prayer, we are more connected to those who are half a world away. Are they safe in their own homes or are they on the run from a violent government? In prayer, we name our hopes and our fears we release what needs letting go and hold fast to what is precious. So here's what I'm thinking. Since we are in a moment not unlike the one Jesus found himself in, we should consider responding as he did by taking it to God in prayer. Our hearts, like Jesus, are heavy Our burdens feel too great for us to bear alone. We are shouldering so much grief and fear. Oh, that this cup would pass from us, to borrow Jesus' words. So let's pray about it, all of it. The anxiety, the uncertainty, the anger, the deep sadness, and the the thousand other things we are experiencing. What will you pray? I have no idea but I trust that it will come to you. Maybe it will be a prayer of gratitude, maybe a prayer of request, maybe a prayer of silence. What will happen? Well, I can't make any exact promises. We know that for Jesus, the time spent in prayer in the garden seemed to have strengthened his heart and steadied his hand. He did not run away from the challenge ahead. We, too, need all the heart and courage we can get right now. If we want to know what will happen if we pray, we'll just have to pray in order to find out. I invite you now to pause the recording in order to create space for you to pray. That might mean lighting a candle or moving to a more comfortable spot. And once you do so, restart the recording. Music will help guide us, and then I will offer a blessing. Let us be in prayer together.
3: I love the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplication because he has inclined his ear to me whenever I called upon him. The cords of death entangled me, the grip of the grave took hold of me. I came to grief and sorrow. Called upon the name of the Lord O Lord, I pray you save my life. Gracious is the Lord unto us. Restore my soul, for the Lord has treated you well. For you have rescued my life from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk in the presence of the Lord, I said, no one can be trusted. How shall I repay the Lord for all the good things he has done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his servants. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant and the child of your handmaid. You have freed me from. offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people.
1: We come with our whispers, our silence, our shouting, our pleading, our bargaining, our confessions, our thanksgiving. Gather them up, will you? For the weight is heavy, and we trust the words of Jesus to be true, that those who are weary and burdened will be given rest, and even still, give us the strength and the courage not to hide our light under a bushel, but let it shine that others might not feel swallowed up by the night. Come to us, Holy One, abide with us and grant us your peace. Amen. Friends, before I offer the benediction, I remind you to come back in just a few days for our Maundy Thursday service on April 9th and then Good Friday, April 10th, both at 6.30. Let us go with a word of blessing. And now may the power of God and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which really does surpass all our understanding, go with every one of us, abiding in us, lifting us up, and making us whole. Let us go in peace, pray for peace, wage a little peace, stay home, and love one another, every single other. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.